Hello, and welcome back to another installment of In Short. My name is Andrew Schlegel, and I am very excited to say that we are now on SoundCloud and Spotify, as well as iTunes, uh, which you might be listening to us on. Uh, but if you're not, you can also follow us on those other platforms. Uh, and you can also follow us on our social media pages uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Facebook, just In Short Podcast, and Twitter at In Short Audio. So today we'll be reading Dr. Jeffrey Cohen's Monster Culture, Seven Theses, a short essay and excerpt from the book Monster Theory, Reading Culture, which, uh, if you like this episode, is an excellent book, which I highly recommend checking out. And also a special thank you to Dr. Cohen, who was kind enough to let us record this essay as a part of this audio library. So a little bit of background, Dr. Cohen is now the Dean of Humanities at Arizona State University, and prior to this, he was part of the English Department at George Washington University. He holds a PhD in English and American Literature and Language, and his work focuses largely on what one might call the capital O Other, the alien, the foreign, the monstrous, namely all that which frightens, titillates, and in any way intrigues us with its otherness, but also with its familiarity. I chose this essay because I believe that by looking at what is considered alien, we learn just as much about the culture as we do about the thing itself. And this essay in particular was one of the earliest, I think, examples of cultural analysis that I read where I realized that um, analysis of culture doesn't just take place through reading a book, or it doesn't just take place exclusively in those scenarios. We don't just we aren't just able to analyze books, we're able to analyze the people that wrote them, the societies that read them, uh, and from that we can generally learn quite a bit. And and so I hope that this essay and indeed his book, if you like this, will give you another sort of critical lens through which to view much of what you see every day, especially some of the most seemingly innocuous aspects of American and more broadly all cultures. So, without further ado, here is Monster Culture, Seven Theses, by Jeffrey Jerome Cohen. What I will propose here by way of a first foray as entrance into this book of monstrous content is a sketch of a new modus legendi, a method of reading cultures from the monsters they engender. In doing so, I will partially violate two of the sacred dicta of recent cultural studies, the compulsion to historical specificity and the insistence that all knowledge, and hence all cartographies of that knowledge, is local. Of the first, I will say only that in cultural studies today, history, disguised perhaps as culture, tends to be fetishized as telos, as a final determinant of meaning. Post-Demon, post-Foucault, post-Hayden White, one must bear in mind that history is just another text in a procession of texts, and not a guarantor of any singular signification. A movement away from the l'enjeu de and toward microeconomies of capital or of gender is associated most often with Foucauldian criticism. Yet recent critics have found that where Foucault went wrong was mainly in his details, in his minute specifics. Nonetheless, his methodology, his archaeology of ideas, his histories of unthought, remains with good reason the chosen route of inquiry for most cultural critics today, whether they work in postmodern cyberculture or in the Middle Ages. And so I would like to make some grand gestures. We live in an age that has rightly given up on unified theory, an age when we realize that history like individuality, subjectivity, gender, and culture, is composed of a multitude of fragments rather than of smooth epistemological holes. 
Some fragments will be collected here and bound temporarily together to form a loosely integrated net, or better, an unassimilated hybrid, a monstrous body. Rather than argue a theory of teratology, I offer by way of introduction to the essays that follow a set of breakable postulates in search of specific cultural moments. I offer seven theses toward understanding cultures through the monsters they bear. Thesis one, the monster's body is a cultural body. Vampires, burial, death, inter the corpse with a road forks so that when it springs from the grave, it will not know which path to follow. Drive a stake through its heart. It will be stuck to the ground at the fork. It will haunt that place that leads to many other places, that point of indecision. Behead the corpse, so that, acephalic, it will not know itself as subject, only as pure body. The monster is born only at this metaphoric crossroads, as an embodiment of a certain cultural moment, of a time, a feeling, and a place. The monster's body quite literally incorporates fear, desire, anxiety, and fantasy, ataractic or incendiary, giving them life and an uncanny independence. The monstrous body is pure culture. A construct and a projection, the monster exists only to be read. The monstrum is etymologically that which reveals, that which warns a glyph that seeks a hierophant. Like a letter on the page, the monster signifies something other than itself. It is always a displacement, always inhabits the gap between the time of upheaval that created it and the moment into which it is received, to be born again. These epistemological spaces between the monster's bones are Derrida's familiar chasm of difference, a genetic uncertainty principle, the essence of the monster's vitality, the reason it always rises from the dissection table as its secrets are about to be revealed and vanishes into the night. Thesis 2. The monster always escapes. We see the damage that the monster wreaks, the material remains, the footprints of the yeti across the Tibetan snow, the bones of the giant stranded on a rocky cliff, but the monster itself turns immaterial and vanishes, to reappear someplace else. For who is the yeti if not the medieval wild man? Who is the wild man if not the biblical and classical giant? No matter how many times King Arthur killed the ogre of Mount St. Michael, the monster reappeared in another heroic chronicle, bequeathing the Middle Ages an abundance of motre d'artur. I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation. Regardless of how many times Sigourney Weaver's beleaguered Ripley utterly destroys the ambiguous alien that stalks her, its monstrous progeny return, ready to stalk again in another bigger-than-ever sequel. No monster tastes of death but once. The anxiety that condenses like green vapor into the form of the vampire can be dispersed temporarily, but the revenant, by definition, returns. And so the monster's body is both corporeal and incorporeal. Its threat is its propensity to shift. Each time the grave opens and the unquiet slumberer strides forth, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, the message proclaimed is transformed by the air that gives its speaker new life. Monsters must be examined within the intricate matrix of relations, social, cultural, and literary-historical that generate them. In speaking of the new kind of vampire invented by Bram Stoker, we might explore the foreign count's transgressive but compelling sexuality, as subtly alluring to Jonathan Harker as Henry Irving, Stoker's mentor, was to Stoker. Or we might analyze Murnau's self-loathing appropriation of the same demon in Nosferatu, where in the face of nascent fascism, the undercurrent of desire surfaces in plague and bodily corruption. Anne Rice has given the myth a modern rewriting in which homosexuality and vampirism have been conjoined, apotheosized. 
that she has created a pop culture phenomenon in the process is not insignificant, especially at a time when gender as a social construct has been scrutinized at almost every social register. In Francis Coppola's recent blockbuster, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the homosexual subtext present at least since the appearance of Sheridan Le Fanu's lesbian Lemia, Carmilla, 1872, has, like the red corpuscles that serve as the film's leitmotif, risen to the surface, primarily as an AIDS awareness that transforms the disease of vampirism into a sadistic and very medieval form of redemption through the torments of the body in pain. No coincidence, then, that Coppola was putting together a documentary on AIDS at the same time that he was working on Dracula. In each of these vampire stories, the undead returns in slightly different clothing, each time to be read against contemporary social movements or a specific determining event. La Decadence and its new possibilities, homophobia and its hateful imperatives, the acceptance of new subjectivities unfixed by binary gender, a fin de siècle social activism, paternalistic in its embrace. Discourse extracting a transcultural, transtemporal phenomenon labeled the vampire is a rather limited utility. Even if vampiric figures are found almost worldwide, from ancient Egypt to modern Hollywood, each reappearance and its analysis is still bound in a double act of construction and reconstruction. Quote, monster theory, unquote, must therefore concern itself with strings of cultural moments, connected by a logic that always threatens to shift, invigorated by change and escape, by the impossibility of achieving what Susan Stewart calls the desired fall or death, the stopping of its gigantic subject. Monstrous interpretation is as much process as epiphany, a work that must content itself with fragments, footprints, bones, talismans, teeth, shadows, obscured glimpses, signifiers of monstrous passing that stand in for the monstrous body itself. Thesis 3. The monster is the harbinger of category crisis. The monster always escapes because it refuses easy categorization. Of the nightmarish creature that Ridley Scott brought to life in Alien, Harvey Greenberg writes, it is a Linnaean nightmare defying every natural law of evolution, by turns bivalve, crustacean, reptilian, and humanoid. It seems capable of lying dormant within its egg indefinitely. It sheds its skin like a snake, its carapace like an arthropod. It deposits its young into other species like a wasp. It responds according to Lamarckian and Darwinian principles. This refusal to participate in the classificatory order of things is true of monsters generally. They are disturbing hybrids whose externally incoherent bodies resist attempts to include them in any systematic structuration. And so the monster is dangerous a form suspended between forms that threatens to smash distinctions. Because of its ontological liminality, the monster notoriously appears at times of crisis as a kind of third term that problematizes the clash of extremes, as that which questions binary thinking and introduces a crisis. This power to evade and to undermine is coursed through the monster's blood from classical times, when despite all the attempts of Aristotle and later Pliny, Augustine, and Isidore, to incorporate the monstrous races into a coherent epistemological system, the monster always escaped to return to its habitations at the margins of the world, a purely conceptual locus rather than a geographic one. Classical wonder books radically undermine the Aristotelian taxonomic system, for by refusing an easy compartmentalization of their monstrous contents, they demand a radical rethinking of boundary and normality. The two precise laws of nature as set forth by science are gleefully violated in the freakish compilation of the monster's body. 
a mixed category, the monster resists any classification built on hierarchy or a merely binary opposition, demanding instead a system, allowing polyphony. Mixed response, difference in sameness, repulsion and attraction, and resistance to integration, allowing what Hogel has called, with a wonderful pun, a deeper play of differences, a non-binary polymorphism at the base of human nature. The horizon where the monsters dwell might well be imagined as the visible edge of the hermeneutic circle itself. The monstrous offers an escape from its hermetic path, an invitation to explore new spirals, new and interconnected methods of perceiving the world. In the face of the monster, scientific inquiry and its ordered rationality crumble. The monstrous is a genus too large to be encapsulated in any conceptual system. The monster's very existence is a rebuke to boundary and enclosure. Like the giants of Mandeville's travels, it threatens to devour all raw and quick any thinker who insists otherwise. The monster is in this way the living embodiment of the phenomenon Derrida has famously labeled the supplement. C'est dangereux supplement. It breaks apart bifurcating either-or syllogistic logic with a kind of reasoning closer to and-or, introducing what Barbara Johnson has called a revolution in the very logic of meaning. Full of rebuke to traditional methods of organizing knowledge and human experience, the geography of the monster is an imperiling expanse, and therefore always a contested cultural space. Thesis 4. The monster dwells at the gates of difference. The monster is difference made flesh come to dwell among us. In its function as dialectical other or third term supplement, the monster is an incorporation of the capital O outside, the capital B beyond, of all those loci that are rhetorically placed as distant and distinct, but originate within. Any kind of alterity can be inscribed across or constructed through the monstrous body, but for the most part, monstrous difference tends to be cultural, political, racial, economic, sexual. The exaggeration of cultural difference into monstrous aberration is familiar enough. The most famous distortion occurs in the Bible, where the aboriginal inhabitants of Canaan are envisioned as menacing giants to justify the Hebrew colonization of the Promised Land, as referenced in Numbers 13. Representing an anterior culture as monstrous justifies its displacement or extermination by rendering the act heroic. In medieval France, the Chansons de Gis celebrated the Crusades by transforming Muslims into demonic caricatures whose menacing lack of humanity was readable from their bestial attributes. By culturally glossing Saracens as monstra, propagandists rendered rhetorically admissible the annexation of the East by the West. This representational project was part of a whole dictionary of strategic losses, in which monstra slipped into significations of the feminine and the hypermasculine. A recent newspaper article on Yugoslavia reminds us how persistent these divisive mythologies can be, and how they can endure divorced from any grounding in historical reality. Quote, a Bosnian Serb militiaman hitchhiking to Sarajevo tells a reporter in all earnestness that the Muslims are feeding Serbian children to the animals in the zoo. The story is nonsense. There aren't any animals left alive in the Sarajevo zoo, but the militiaman is convinced and can recall all the wrongs that Muslims may or may not have perpetrated during their 500 years of rule. End quote. In the United States, Native Americans were presented as unredeemable savages so that the powerful political machine of manifest destiny could push westward with disregard. Scattered throughout Europe by the diaspora and steadfastly refusing assimilation into Christian society, Jews have been perennial favorites for xenophobic misrepresentation. For here was an alien culture, living, working, and even at times prospering, within vast communities dedicated to becoming homogenous and monolithic. The Middle Ages accused the Jews of crimes ranging from the bringing of the plague 
to bleeding Christian children to make their Passover meal. Nazi Germany simply brought these ancient traditions of hate to their conclusion, inventing a final solution that differed from earlier persecution only in its technological efficiency. Political or ideological difference is as much a catalyst to monstrous representation on a micro-level as cultural alterity in the macrocosm. A political figure suddenly out of favor is transformed like an unwilling participant in a science experiment by the appointed historians of the replacement regime. Monstrous history is rife with sudden Ovidian metamorphoses, from Vlad Tepes to Ronald Reagan. The most illustrious of these propaganda-bred demons is the English King Richard III, whom Thomas More famously described as little of stature, ill-fetchered of limbs, croak-backed, his left shoulder much higher than his right, hard favorite of visage. He came into the world with the feet forward, also not untoed. From birth, Moore declares, Richard was a monster, his deformed body a readable text on which was inscribed his deviant morality, indistinguishable from an incorrect political orientation. The almost obsessive descanting on Richard from Polydor Virgil in the Renaissance to the friends of Richard III incorporated in our own era demonstrates the process of monster theory at its most active. Culture gives birth to a monster before our eyes, painting over the normally proportioned Richard who once lived, raising his shoulder to deform simultaneously person, cultural response, and the possibility of objectivity. History itself becomes a monster, defeaturing, self-deconstructive, always in danger of exposing the sutures that bind its disparate elements into a single, unnatural body. At the same time, Richard moves between monster and man, the disturbing suggestion arises that this incoherent body, denaturalized and always in peril of disaggregation, may well be our own. The difficult project of constructing and maintaining gender identities elicits an array of anxious responses throughout culture, producing another impetus to teratogenesis. The woman who oversteps the boundaries of her gender role risks becoming a Scylla, weird sister, Lilith, die erste Eva, la mère obscure, Bertha Mason, or Gorgon. Deviant sexual identity is similarly susceptible to monsterization. The great medieval encyclopedist Vincent of Beauvoir describes the visit of a hermaphroditic cynocephalus to the French court in his Speculum Naturale. Its male reproductive organ is said to be disproportionately large, but the monster could use either sex at its own discretion. Bruno Roy writes of this fantastic hybrid, quote, What warning did he come to deliver to the king? He came to bear witness to sexual norms. He embodied the punishment earned by those who violate sexual taboos. End quote. This strange creature, a composite of the supposedly discrete categories male and female, arrives before King Louis to validate heterosexuality over homosexuality, with its supposed inversions and transformations. Quote, Equa fit equus, one Latin writer declared, the horse becomes a mare. End quote. The strange, dog-headed monster is a living excoriation of gender ambiguity and sexual abnormality, as Vincent's cultural moment defines them. Heteronormalization incarnate. From the classical period into the 20th century, race has been almost as powerful a catalyst to the creation of monsters as culture, gender, and sexuality. Africa early became the West's significant other, the sign of its ontological difference simply being skin color. According to the Greek myth of Phaeton, the denizens of mysterious and uncertain Ethiopia were black because they had been scorched by the too close passing of the sun. The Roman naturalist Pliny assumed non-white skin to be symptomatic of a complete difference in temperament and attributed Africa's darkness to climate. 
The intense heat, he said, had burned the African skin and malformed their bodies. These differences were quickly moralized by a pervasive difference in rhetoric. Paulinus of Nola, a wealthy landowner turned early church homilist, explained that the Ethiopians had been scorched by sin and vice rather than by sun, and the anonymous commentator to Theodolus's influential Ecloga, 10th century, succinctly glossed the meaning of the word Ethiopium. Quote, Ethiopians, that is, sinners. Indeed, sinners can rightly be compared to Ethiopians who are black men presenting a terrifying appearance to those beholding them. End quote. Dark skin was associated with the fires of hell, and so signified in Christian mythology demonic provenance. The perverse and exaggerated sexual appetite of monsters generally was quickly affixed to the Ethiopian. This linking was only strengthened by xenophobic backlash as the dark-skinned people were forcibly imported into Europe in the early Renaissance. Narratives of miscegenation arose and circulated to sanction official policies of exclusion. Queen Elizabeth is famous for her anxiety over, quote, blackamoors, end quote, and their supposed threat to the, quote, increase of people of our own nation, end quote. Through all these monsters, the boundaries between personal and national bodies blur. To complicate this category confusion further, one kind of alterity is often written as another, so that national difference, for example, is transformed into sexual difference. Geraldus Cambrensis demonstrates just this slippage of the foreign in his topography of Ireland. When he writes of the Irish, ostensibly simply to provide information about them to a curious English court, but actually as a first step towards invading and colonizing the land, he observes, quote, it is indeed a most filthy race, a race sunk in vice, a race more ignorant than all other nations of the first principles of faith. These people who have customs so different from others and so opposite to them, on making signs either with the hands or the head, beckon when they mean that you should go away, and nod backwards as often as they wish to be rid of you. Likewise, in this nation, the men pass their water sitting, the women standing, the women also, as well as the men, ride astride, with their legs stuck out on each side of the horse. End quote. One kind of inversion becomes another as Geraldus deciphers the alphabet of Irish culture and reads it backwards against the norm of English masculinity. Geraldus creates a vision of monstrous gender, aberrant, demonstrative. The violation of the cultural codes that valence gendered behaviors creates a rupture that must be cemented with, in this case, the binding, corrective mortar of English normalcy. A bloody war of subjugation followed immediately after the promulgation of this text, remained potent throughout the High Middle Ages, and in a way, continues to this day. Through a similar discursive process, the East becomes feminized, according to Said, and the soul of Africa grows dark, according to Gates. One kind of difference becomes another, as the normative categories of gender, sexuality, national identity, and ethnicity slide together like the imbricated circles of a Venn diagram, abjecting from the center that which becomes the monster. This violent foreclosure erects a self-validating Hegelian master-slave dialectic that naturalizes the subjugation of one cultural body by another by writing the body excluded from personhood and agency as in every way different, monstrous. A polysemy is granted so that a greater threat can be encoded. Multiplicity of meanings, paradoxically, iterates the same restricting, agitprop representations that narrowed signification performs. Yet a danger resides in this multiplication. As difference, like a hydra, sprouts two heads where one has been lopped away, the possibilities of escape, resistance, disruption arise with more force. René Girard has written at great length about the real violence these debasing representations enact, connecting monsterizing depiction with the phenomenon of the scapegoat. Monsters are never created ex nihilo. 
but through a process of fragmentation and recombination in which elements are extracted, quote, from various forms, unquote, including, indeed especially, marginalized social groups, and then assembled as the monster, quote, which can then claim an independent identity, end quote. The political cultural monster, the embodiment of radical difference, paradoxically threatens to erase difference in the world of its creators, to demonstrate the potential for the system to differ from its own difference. In other words, not to be different at all, to cease to exist as a system. Difference that exists outside the system is terrifying because it reveals the truth of the system, its relativity, its fragility, and its mortality. Despite what is said around us, persecutors are never obsessed with the difference, but rather by its unutterable contrary, the lack of difference. By revealing that difference is arbitrary and potentially free-floating, mutable rather than essential, the monster threatens to destroy not just individual members of a society, but the very cultural apparatus through which individuality is constituted and allowed. Because it is a body across which difference has been repeatedly written, the monster, like Frankenstein's creature, that combination of odd somatic pieces stitched together from a community of cadavers, seeks out its author to demand its raison d'etre, and to bear witness to the fact that it could have been constructed otherwise. Godzilla trampled Tokyo. Gerard frees him here to fragment the delicate matrix of relational systems that unite every private body to the public world. Thesis 5. The monster polices the borders of the possible. The monster resists capture in the epistemological nets of the erudite, but it is something more than a Bakhtinian ally of the popular. From its position at the limits of knowing, the monster stands as a warning against the exploration of its uncertain domains. The giants of Patagonia, the dragons of the Orient, and the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park together declare that curiosity is more often punished than rewarded, that one is better off safely contained within one's own domestic sphere than abroad, away from the watchful eyes of the state. The monster prevents mobility, intellectual, geographic, or sexual, delimiting the social spaces through which private bodies may move. To step outside this official geography is to risk attack by some monstrous border patrol, or worse, to become monstrous oneself. Lacan, the first werewolf in Western literature, undergoes his lupine metamorphosis as the culmination of a fable of hospitality. Ovid relates how the primeval giants attempted to plunge the world into anarchy by wrenching Olympus from the gods, only to be shattered by divine thunderbolts. From their scattered bodies arose a race of men who continued their father's malignant ways. Among this wicked progeny was Lycaon, king of Arcadia. When Jupiter arrived as a guest at his house, Lycaon tried to kill the ruler of the gods as he slept, and the next day served him pieces of a servant's body as a meal. The enraged Jupiter punished this violation of the host-guest relationship by transforming Lycaon into a monstrous semblance of that lawless, godless state to which his actions would drag humanity back. The king himself flies in terror and, gaining the fields, howls aloud, attempting in vain to speak. His mouth of itself gathers foam, and with his accustomed greed for blood he turns against the sheep, delighting still in slaughter. His garments change to shaggy hair, his arms to legs. He turns into a wolf, and yet retains some traces of his former shape. The horribly fascinating loss of Lycan's humanity merely reifies his previous moral state. The king's body is rendered all transparent, instantly and insistently readable. The power of the narrative prohibition peaks in the lingering description of the monstrously composite Lycan at that median where he is both man and beast, dual natures in a helpless tumult of assertion. The fable concludes when Lycan can no longer speak, only signify. 
Whereas monsters born of political expedience and self-justifying nationalism function as living invitations to action, usually military, invasions, usurpations, colonizations, the monster of prohibition polices the borders of the possible, interdicting through its grotesque body some behaviors and actions and in valuing others. It is possible, for example, that medieval merchants intentionally disseminated maps depicting sea serpents like Leviathan at the edges of their trade routes in order to discourage further exploration and to establish monopolies. Every monster is in this way a double narrative, two living stories, one that describes how the monster came to be and another its testimony, detailing what cultural use the monster serves. The monster of prohibition exists to demarcate the bounds that hold together that system of relations we call culture, to call horrid attention to the borders that cannot, must not, be crossed. Primarily, these borders are in place to control the traffic in women, or more generally, to establish strictly homosocial bounds, the ties between men that keep a patriarchal society functional. A kind of herdsman, this monster delimits the social space through which cultural bodies may move, and in classical times, for example, validated a tight hierarchical system of naturalized leadership and control where every man had a functional place. The prototype in Western culture for this kind of geographic monster is Homer's Polyphemus, the quintessential xenophobic rendition of the foreign, the barbaric, that which is unintelligible within a given cultural linguistic system, the Cyclops are represented as savages who have not a law to bless them, and who lack the techne to produce Greek-style civilization. Their archaism is conveyed through their lack of hierarchy and a politics of precedent. This dissociation from community leads to a rugged individualism that in Homeric terms can only be horrifying. Because they live without a system of tradition and custom, the Cyclops are a danger to the arriving Greeks, men whose identities are contingent upon a compartmentalized function within a de-individualizing system of subordination and control. Polyphemus's victims are devoured, engulfed, made to vanish from the public gaze, cannibalism as incorporation into the wrong cultural body. The monster is a powerful ally of what Foucault calls the, quote, Polymorphous conducts are actually extracted from people's bodies and from their pleasures, to be drawn out, revealed, isolated, intensified, incorporated by multifarious power devices, end quote. Susan Stewart has observed that, quote, the monster's sexuality takes on a separate life, end quote. Foucault helps us to see why. The monster embodies those sexual practices that must not be committed, or that may be committed only through the body of the monster. She and them. The monster enforces the cultural codes that regulate sexual desire. Anyone familiar with the low-budget science fiction movie craze of the 1950s will recognize in the preceding sentence two superb films of the genre. One about a radioactive virago from outer space who kills every man she touches. The other, a social parable, in which giant ants, really communists, burrow beneath Los Angeles, that is Hollywood, and threaten world peace, that is American conservatism. I connect these two seemingly unrelated titles here to call attention to the anxieties that monsterize their subjects in the first place, and to enact syntactically an even deeper fear, that the two will join in some unholy miscegenation. We have seen that the monster arises at the gap where difference is perceived as dividing a recording voice from its captured subject. The criterion of this division is arbitrary, and can range from anatomy or skin color to religious belief, custom, and political ideology. The monster's destructiveness is really a deconstructiveness. It threatens to reveal that difference originates in process rather than in fact, and that fact is subject to constant reconstruction and change. Given that the recorders of the history of the West have been mainly European and male, women, she, and non-whites, them, 
have found themselves repeatedly transformed into monsters, whether to validate specific alignments of masculinity and whiteness, or simply to be pushed from its realm of thought. Feminine and cultural others are monstrous enough by themselves in patriarchal society, but when they threaten to mingle, the entire economy of desire comes under attack. As a vehicle of prohibition, the monster most often rises to enforce the laws of exogamy. Both the incest taboo, which establishes a traffic in women by mandating that they marry outside their families, and the decrees against interracial sexual mingling, which limit the parameters of that traffic by policing the boundaries of culture, usually in the service of some notion of group purity. Incest narratives are common to every tradition, and have been extensively documented, mainly owing to Levi Strauss's elevation of the taboo to the founding base of patriarchal society. Miscegenation, that intersection of misogyny, gender anxiety, and racism, no matter how naive, has received considerably less critical attention. I will say a few words about it here. The Bible has long been the primary source for divine decrees against interracial mixing. One of these pronouncements is a straightforward command from God that comes through the mouth of the prophet Joshua, in Joshua 23.12. Another is a cryptic episode in Genesis, much elaborated during the medieval period, alluding to sons of God who impregnate the daughters of men with a wicked race of giants, in Genesis 6.4. The monsters are here, as elsewhere, expedient representations of other cultures, generalized and demonized to enforce a strict notion of group sameness. The fears of contamination, impurity, and loss of identity that produce stories like the Genesis episode are strong, and they reappear incessantly. Shakespeare's Caliban, for example, is the product of such an illicit mingling, the freckled whelp of the Algerian witch Sikorax and the devil. Charlotte Bronte reversed the usual paradigm in Jane Eyre, White Rochester, and lunatic Jamaican Bertha Mason. But horror movies as seemingly innocent as King Kong demonstrate miscegenation anxiety in its brutal essence. Even a film as recent as 1979's immensely successful Alien may have a cognizance of the fear in its underworkings. The grotesque creature that stalks the heroine, dressed in the final scene only in her underwear, drips a glistening slime of KY jelly from its teeth. The jaw tendons are constructed of shredded condoms, and the man inside the rubber suit is Balaji Badejo, a Maasai tribesman standing seven feet tall who happened to be studying in England at the time the film was cast. The narratives of the West perform the strangest dance around that fire in which miscegenation and its practitioners have been condemned to burn. Among the flames, we see the old women of Salem hanging, accused of sexual relations with the Black Devil. We suspect they died because they crossed a different border one that prohibits women from managing property and living solitary, unmanaged lives. The flames devour the Jews of 13th century England who stole children from proper families and baked cedar matzo with their blood. As a menace to the survival of English race and culture, they were expelled from the country and their property confiscated. A competing narrative again implicates monstrous economics. The Jews were the moneylenders. The state and its commerce were heavily indebted to them. But the second story is submerged in a horrifying fable of cultural purity and threat to Christian continuance. As the American frontier expanded beneath the banner of Manifest Destiny in the 19th century, tales circulated about how Indians routinely kidnapped white women to furnish wives for themselves. The West was a place of danger, waiting to be tamed into farms, its menacing native inhabitants fit only to be dispossessed. It matters little that the protagonist of Richard Wright's native son did not rape and butcher his employer's daughter. That narrative is supplied by the police, by an angry white society, indeed, by Western history itself. In the novel, as in life, the threat occurs when a non-white leaves the reserve abandoned to him. Wright envisions what happens when the horizon of narrative expectation is firmly set, and his conclusion, borne out in 17th century Salem, medieval England, and 19th century America, is that the actual circumstances of history tend to vanish when a narrative of miscegenation can be supplied.
The monster is transgressive, too sexual, perversely erotic, a lawbreaker, and so the monster and all that it embodies must be exiled or destroyed. The repressed, however, like Freud himself, always seems to return. Thesis 6. Fear of the monster is really a kind of desire. The monster is continually linked to forbidden practices in order to normalize and to enforce. The monster also attracts. The same creatures who terrify and interdict can evoke potent escapist fantasies. The linking of monstrosity with the forbidden makes the monster all the more appealing as a temporary egress from constraint. This simultaneous repulsion and attraction at the core of the monster's composition accounts greatly for its continued cultural popularity, for the fact that the monster seldom can be contained in a simple binary dialectic, thesis, antithesis, no synthesis. We distrust and loathe the monster at the same time we envy its freedom, and perhaps its sublime despair. Through the body of the monster, fantasies of aggression, domination, and inversion are allowed safe expression in a clearly delimited and permanently liminal space. Escapist delights give way to horror only when the monster threatens to overstep these boundaries, to destroy or deconstruct the thin walls of category and culture. When contained by geographic, generic, or epistemic marginalization, the monster can function as an alter ego, as an alluring projection of an other self. The monster awakens one to the pleasures of the body, to the simple and fleeting joys of being frightened or frightening, to the experience of mortality and corporality. We watch the monster spectacle of the horror film because we know that the cinema is a temporary place, that the jolting sensuousness of the celluloid images will be followed by re-entry into the world of comfort and light. Likewise, the story on the page before us may horrify, whether it appears in the New York Times news section or Stephen King's latest novel matters little, so long as we are safe in the knowledge of its nearing end. The number of pages in our right hand is dwindling, and our liberation from it. Orally received narratives work no differently, no matter how unsettling the description of the giant, no matter how many unbaptized children and hapless knights he devours, King Arthur will ultimately destroy him. The audience knows how the genre works. Times of Carnival temporarily marginalized the monstrous, but at the same time allowed a safe realm of expression and play. On Halloween, everyone is a demon for a night. The same impulse to ataractic fantasy is behind much lavishly bizarre manuscript marginalia, from abstract scribblings at the edges of an ordered page to preposterous animals and vaguely humanoid creatures of strange anatomy that crowd a biblical text. Gargoyles and ornately sculpted grotesques lurking at the crossbeams or upon the roof of the cathedral likewise record the liberating fantasies of a bored or repressed hand suddenly freed to populate the margins. Maps and travel accounts inherited from antiquity invented whole geographies of the mind and peopled them with exotic and fantastic creatures. Ultima Thule, Ethiopia, and the Antipodes were the medieval equivalents of outer space and virtual reality, imaginary, wholly verbal geographies accessible from anywhere never meant to be discovered, but always waiting to be explored. Jacques Le Goff has written that the Indian Ocean, a mental horizon imagined in the Middle Ages to be completely enclosed by land, was a cultural space, quote, where taboos were eliminated or exchanged for others. The weirdness of this world produced an impression of liberation and freedom. The strict morality imposed by the church was contrasted with the discomforting attractiveness of a world of bizarre tastes, which practiced coprophagy and cannibalism of bodily innocence, where man, freed of the modesty of clothing, rediscovered nudism and sexual freedom, and where, once rid of restrictive monogamy and family barriers, he could give himself over to polygamy, incest, and eroticism." End quote. 
The habitations of the monsters, Africa, Scandinavia, America, Venus, the Delta Quadrant, whatever land is sufficiently distant to be exoticized, are more than dark regions of uncertain danger. They are also realms of happy fantasy, horizons of liberation. Their monsters serve as secondary bodies through which the possibilities of other genders, other sexual practices, and other social customs can be explored. Hermaphrodites, Amazons, and lascivious cannibals beckon from the edges of the world, the most distant planets of the galaxy. The co-optation of the monster into a symbol of the desirable is often accomplished through the neutralization of potentially threatening aspects with a liberal dose of comedy. The thundering giant becomes the bumbling giant. Monsters may still function, however, as the vehicles of causative fantasies even without their valences reversed. What Bakhtin calls official culture can transfer all that is viewed as undesirable in itself into the body of the monster, performing a wish-fulfillment drama of its own. The scapegoated monster is perhaps ritually destroyed in the course of some official narrative, purging the community by eliminating its sins. The monster's eradication functions as an exorcism and, when retold and promulgated, as a catechism. The monastically manufactured Cus de Saint Graal serves as an ecclesiastically sanctioned antidote to the loose immorality of the secular romances. When Sir Bors comes across a castle where ladies of high descent and rank tempt him to sexual indulgence, these ladies are, of course, demons in lascivious disguise. When Bors refuses to sleep with one of these transcorporal devils, described as so lovely and so fair that it seemed all earthly beauty was embodied in her, his steadfast assertion of control banishes them all shrieking back to hell. The episode valorizes the celibacy so central to the author's belief system and so difficult to enforce while inculcating a lesson in morality for the work's intended secular audience, the knights and courtly women fond of romances. Seldom, however, are monsters as uncomplicated in their use and manufacture as the demons that haunt Sir Bors. Allegory may flatten a monster rather thin, as when the vivacious demon of the Anglo-Saxon hagiographic poem Juliana becomes the one-sided complainer of Cinewolf's Elena. More often, however, the monster retains a haunting complexity. The dense symbolism that makes a thick description of the monsters in Spencer, Milton, and even Beowulf so challenging reminds us how permeable the monstrous body can be, how difficult to dissect. This corporal fluidity, this simultaneity of anxiety and desire, ensures that the monster will always dangerously entice. A certain intrigue is allowed even Vincent of Beauvoir's well-endowed Cynocephalus, for he occupies a textual space of allure before his necessary dismissal, during which he is granted an undeniable charm. The monstrous lurks somewhere in that ambiguous, primal space between fear and attraction, close to the heart of what Kristeva calls abjection. Quote, there looms within abjection one of those violent, dark revolts of being, directed against a threat that seems to emanate from an exorbitant outside or inside. Ejected beyond the scope of the possible, the tolerable, the thinkable, it lies there, quite close, but it cannot be assimilated. It beseeches, worries, fascinates desire, which, nonetheless, does not let itself be seduced. Apprehensive, desire turns aside. Sickened, it rejects. But simultaneously, just the same, that impetus, that spasm, that leap, is drawn toward an elsewhere, as tempting as it is condemned. Unflaggingly, like an inescapable boomerang, a vortex of summons and repulsion places the one haunted by it literally beside himself." End quote. And the self that one stands so suddenly and so nervously beside is the monster. The monster is the abjected fragment that enables the formation of all kinds of identities personal, national, cultural, economic, sexual, psychological, universal, particular, even if that particular identity is an embrace of the power, status, or knowledge of an abjection itself. 
As such, it reveals their partiality, their contiguity, a product of a multitude of morphogenesis ranging from somatic to ethnic that align themselves to imbue meaning to the us and them behind every cultural mode of seeing. The monster of abjection resides in that marginal geography of the exterior, beyond the limits of the thinkable, a place that is doubly dangerous, simultaneously exorbitant and quite close. Judith Butler calls this conceptual locus, quote, a domain of unlivability and unintelligibility that bounds the domain of intelligible effects, end quote, but points out that even when discursively closed off, it offers a base for critique, a margin from which to reread dominant paradigms. Like Grendel thundering from the mirror or Dracula creeping from the grave, like Kristeva's boomerang, a vortex of summons, or the uncanny Freudian-Lacanian return of the repressed, the monster is always coming back, always at the verge of eruption. Perhaps it is time to ask the question that always arises when the monster is discussed seriously. The inevitability of the question, a symptom of the deep anxiety about what is and what should be thinkable, an anxiety that the process of monster theory is destined to raise. Do monsters really exist? Surely they must, for if they did not, how could we? Thesis 7. The monster stands at the threshold of becoming. This thing of darkness I acknowledge mine. Monsters are our children. They can be pushed to the farthest margins of geography and discourse, hidden away at the edges of the world and in the forbidden recesses of our mind, but they always return. And when they come back, they bring not just a fuller knowledge of our place in history and the history of knowing our place, but they bear self-knowledge, human knowledge, and a discourse all the more sacred as it arises from the outside. These monsters ask us how we perceive the world, and how we have misrepresented what we have attempted to place. They ask us to reevaluate our cultural assumptions about race, gender, sexuality, our perception of difference, our tolerance towards its expression. They ask us why we have created them. So this is the end of Monster Culture, Seven Theses. And again, a special thank you to Dr. Cohn for allowing us to bring you this piece, which for me personally was an excellent introduction to cultural studies and which was also formative in my learning about semiotics, cultural criticism, and the idea as a whole that meaning must come from somewhere, that life and culture and politics and everything else don't simply exist in a vacuum, and that it is almost always beneficial to examine how certain things came to be and why, and I think I would also be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to relate this concept of monsterization and the processes by which it occurs to broader themes such as class, race, sex, gender, nationality, religion, ethnicity, etc. in the present day. As we can still learn quite a bit from the ongoing monsterization of certain groups by those with power and influence, right now especially, seeing as it's June, I think it's extremely important to acknowledge the struggles that LGBTQ plus folks have faced and continue to face, and to hopefully make you think a bit more about their historical monsterization. So that's it for this episode of In Short, I'm Andrew Schlegel. If you want to hear more of this, you're in luck, because in coming weeks we have more content coming for you, such as The Social Ideology of the Motor Car by Andre Gortz, 
I'm also excited to announce that we will have Riley Quinn of Trash Future reading Walter Benjamin's seminal work, The Work of Art in the Age of Its Mechanical Reproducibility, and I will be reading Mr. Rogers wrote a piece called Mr. Rogers on Men and Child Care that I found very compelling, and I hope to do a bit more media criticism as well, including Edward Bernays' The Engineering of Consent. And our other host, JR, is now in the process of recording a pretty long and very interesting piece by Chris Harmon called From Feudalism to Capitalism. So if you're interested in that, that will be out in the next about week or so. And if you have any pieces that you would like us to read, any questions, any comments, if you'd like us to maybe do a little bit more discussion, please reach out to us through our social media pages. Again, we have a Facebook, uh, In Short Podcast, and we also have a Twitter, at In Short Audio. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Schlegel, and this has been In Short.